This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. This is episode 94 of the Best Friends Podcast. It is December 30th. And we are oh so close to saying goodbye to this year and welcoming in 2022. So we're taking a look back at the year that was and playing some clips from our favorite episodes of the year. And it is hard for me to believe, but this is the 48th episode of the year. We had 66 guests from 22 different states representing 40 different shelters, rescues, foundations, companies, all sharing their expertise with you on the Best Friends podcast. Now, we talked about a lot of things. We had one-on-one interviews with powerhouses in the industry. Mary Ippolitti Smith from Maddie's Fund, Ed Jameson, Operation Kindness in Dallas, Julie Castle, Francis Batista from Best Friends. The topics range from DEI. We talked about challenges facing rural America, including those faced by indigenous peoples on reservations. We talked about about strategies to save cats, dogs with behavioral challenges, senior pets, data, mutual aid, strategic planning, staffing, trusting the public, veterans transport, compassion fatigue, and that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of all of the things we talked about. And I really enjoyed putting together every episode, speaking with every single guest, truly an honor. And of course, I'm biased, but I think the podcast is great, and I hope you agree. So to look back, we've pulled together a few clips from a handful of episodes that we think tell the story of 2021. So check out the show notes where you'll find a link to the website for this episode. We're going to have lots of resources for each of the episodes you'll hear and links to hear the full versions. We're going to start with Julie Castle the CEO of Best Friends. It was not her first time on the podcast. She was the guest on the very first episode. I interviewed her in March of 2020, so it was great to sit down with Julie again and get caught up because it's fair to say that a lot happened in the 11 months before our second conversation, and there was no bigger moment in that time than the murder of George Floyd, which brought racial justice issues to the forefront for the nation and animal welfare. And that was something Julie addressed in episode 52. I mean, I think that was such a, I, you know, what a tragic event and what a shameful event that happens in our history. And I think as, as children were raised with this historical perspective that, that being a history major and a political science major, you recognize quickly that the way that our history is written really highlights um, all the good stuff, I guess. Right. I mean, obviously there's stuff that covered that's covered that isn't, but when it comes to inequity, when it comes to sort of the sins of our past, in my opinion, we need to start there. And I, I've, you know, you, you could get a great argument from a lot of different people saying, why are we reliving the past and let's move forward and it's all about the future. I agree with that. But I think at some point, in order to understand how to make the future better, you have to go back and understand what happened in the past. And man, it is tragic. It's barbaric. I feel like we as a, a human race, we as Americans, me as a white person, there, there was a lot of soul searching around the George Floyd incident. And I feel like from my perspective, 
leading this organization during COVID and beyond COVID, it is our imperative to make sure that we don't forget that, that we don't just move on. You know, our country and our society today has such a short attention span. And you'll see things come into the news cycle and they disappear. And you're like, oh, wait, remember killer hornets or murder? You know, it's that kind of thing. And I feel like this is something that we cannot let go of. And I'll never forget, I was in Los Angeles right after I took over managing that program when I was over Best Friends Outreach. And Francis and Silva Batista went out with me. And we went to visit Lori Wise with Downtown Dog Rescue, who was one of the first people who was doing work that wasn't in a ultra white middle or upper class neighborhood. And Lori was so incredible and made such a, an indelible impression on me. And after we left, Francis said, it was so visionary at the time. And it's still visionary. He said, we have to stop taking animals out of underserved neighborhoods and moving them into white upper middle class neighborhoods. And I was like, damn, you're right. That is so true. And that has defined our movement. You know, we are a bunch of middle or upper class white, white women, basically. And I'm one of them. You know, look, I, there's nothing I can do about that. That's who I am. But what I can do is be deliberate and focused on making sure that the organization that I lead is doing everything in its power to not only embrace those communities, but partner with them. This is a, you know, multi-century old issue. And I think we need to be careful to not solve, try and solve this overnight because there is a lot to unpack here. And there is a lot of, of stuff that we need to work through as a society and an organization. Final point on this is our core work. When you look at the fact that we're trying to get to 2025 and we are making tremendous progress. And when you look at the latest data release, and you see that the animals that are most at risk, not everywhere, but in a chunk of our country, those are communities that are also at risk. And so, you know, it is a really great opportunity for us as a movement to say, how do we help the animals in that community? And how do we help the people in that community? And not help, but partner embrace, you know, learn from, because that's going to be the key. It's not about running in with our capes on, rescuing a bunch of animals and leaving. It is about learning. It's about opening our hearts, opening our minds, and really embracing this as a, a community solution, as a solution of kindness that means kindness to our fellow human beings and animals. And it's about changing the world. And I think that I'm really excited about it. You know, I think the more inroads we make and the 
more progress we make, the more lives we're going to save. And I don't need to define if they're animal or human. Well, it's becoming a bit of a tradition to chat with Julie every 50 episodes or so, it seems. So we'll be doing it again soon. Keep your ear out for that episode in February of 2022. DEI issues, certainly a major theme of the year. And pulling this best of episode together, it really reminded me of just how that plays into everything we're doing, everywhere we are doing it. Rural America, for example, and the challenges of serving communities across this vast country of ours. Brent Tolner from Best Friends. This is from episode 51. I really wanted you here to talk about numbers. Uh, and I know there's been some work done on the data front to try to better understand this. So what do we know? What is the rural America story for animals by the numbers? Yeah, so I mean, I think we've always inherently known right? That when people are in jeopardy, pets are in jeopardy. Uh, and that there's that interchange there. And then when pets are in jeopardy, then shelters find themselves in, in challenging situations. And so we've been doing a lot of work around social vulnerability and using the CDC Social Vulnerability Index to see if we can understand a little bit more of the connection between being socially vulnerable and shelter intakes and outcomes. So really the Social Vulnerability Index is something the CDC has put together, and it really looks at a lot of different factors that can help determine whether a community and the people in the community are at risk. And it looks at things like socioeconomic status of the people in the community, what their household composition, and whether there are high levels of people with disabilities in them. It looks at things like race, ethnicity, and language. It looks at things like housing, uh, whether people own or rent houses, and housing prices. It also looks at uh, the accessibility of transportation and really groups people into high, medium, and, and low levels of vulnerability, and th these communities into high, medium, and low levels of vulnerability. What we found is about 29% of the population uh, of the United States lives in an area that would be considered highly vulnerable, and yet 53% of the shelter deaths that are happening out there are, are happening in those communities. What it really highlights is what we've kind of known all along, is that there's a strong connection between people who are at risk, pets who are at risk, and that subsequently, when shelters are going to be challenged because they're going to have a, a higher propensity of animals coming into those shelters. And I think that often, you know, we think about being socially vulnerable and we put it in our brains of like, this is in very urban areas and it really involves uh, high populations of minorities in urban areas. But the reality of the matter is that it impacts a lot of rural America too. And that 61% of all of these high socially vulnerable counties are actually rural counties. Almost 30% of them are highly rural counties. It's impossible for us to have this discussion about where we are uh, and highlight the myriad types of rural communities across the country. But one thing I think of, and I, I think it certainly speaks to the report, is that in so many places, it's not an issue of getting services that exist to a part of town that doesn't have access. So what I mean by that, you know, in, in larger urban communities, there, there are span neuter services oftentimes. It's just getting them to the parts of the community that need it. Mm -hmm. In these cases, it's like they just, these services don't exist at all. Like there's one vet for the entire community. And that one vet, even if they want to offer a low or no cost spay neuter, they just don't have the capacity to do it. Yeah. So of the thousand counties in the country that are labeled as heavily rural, 26% of them don't have any veterinary resources at all. Uh, even some of the ones that do, it's like 
Yes, they have a veterinarian, but it's the same veterinarian you would call for your dog or your cat as you would call for your horse or your cow or your pig. Like it, it's one veterinarian that's serving all animal species. Yeah, so a lot of them don't have, you know, a quarter of them, well, more than a quarter, don't have any veterinary access at all. A significant number of them, um, 35% of them don't even have a shelter. So like there's not a shelter, there's not a veterinarian, there's, there's just no resources to your point. We also spoke with two different organizations in Oklahoma and learned about what they're doing to help pet owners statewide. You can hear about their efforts, again, episode 51. You won't find too many places in the lower 48 that are as sparsely populated and underserved as the Navajo Nation. This massive area spread out over 27,000 square miles. That's larger than the state of West Virginia. Best friends and others are working with the pet owners of this area, and they desperately need help. But the challenges of working there are immense. We spoke with Keith Slim Tolagai, he himself a member of that community, he's a best friend staff member. We learned more about what he and others are doing across the Navajo Nation to help people and pets. Well, let's talk about the animals, Keith. What does exist for them in terms of resources uh, within the Navajo Nation? You said four animal shelters, I think seven animal control officers. How does that work and you know what else is available for pet owners out there on a consistent basis? So we do have some vet clinics, but I know that we don't have enough um, vet. There's one, she has to go in between three communities, Shiprock, Chinle, and Sabanito. And so she'll be there on certain days. And then we do have another one in Tuba City, which is on the Western region. You know, so it gets overwhelming even before. And I think even since the pandemic, they have to make an appointment to vaccinate, to get spay or neuter your your, your, your dogs, or even just to come in, and, and, you know, if your dog needs to be seen by a vet, then, you know, you have to uh, make an appointment, you know, and then the appointments are already stacked up and, you know, they'll tell you, well, the only time I have for you is maybe next month, but you want to get seen. <laughs> right away right and so that that becomes a hindrance and then if you go outside the reservation to the border towns then it gets expensive and then the distance we do have some people who don't have transportation so that becomes another issue so when you when we see spay and neuter clinics and and vaccination clinics come up um, on the weekends we see a lot of people come to me that tells me that most of the community members do care they care about their animals. They care about their pets. But I know that we're overwhelmed. We do have some animals that are some strays that, that gang up, I guess you'd say, that become packs. And we need to get that resolved. We do have some community members that get a stray coming into their homestead. And then they start to care for them. And then that stray may already be pregnant. And all of a sudden, they have like 10 more puppies, 10 more animals that they have to care for on top of the four that they may have. And now it's getting bigger and bigger. And so they're reaching out to the different rescues or they take them to the animal control. Most people do try to be responsible, but I think it's just the resources are sometimes not all readily available. Well, I'd like to think that someday we'll get to a point where we don't have to say this, but we are not there yet. So no matter how much money someone has, what their race is, what access to services they have or don't have, people love their pets. And we know the only solution is to help them 
be the best pet owner they can be. We can't mandate who should or shouldn't own pets. We can't go out and round up own pets and expect those same people not to you know, get another animal. We should always be trying to preserve the human animal bond, period. So on the whole, fair to say then, the issues you see, again, on the whole, not neglect or lack of caring, just the inability to break through the barriers that are stopping them from getting help. So given that, what's the reception from people like Keith? I mean, are you welcomed out there? Are they happy to see you? Yes. I think once you make people aware of um, of your purpose, you know, of who you are, that I'm here for your pets. <laughs> and, 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 and then just being respectful. Um, that's one of the things I try to do is being as respectful as possible with my own people, my own community members, and and even even with other people, with you know whatever whoever you make partnerships with, and just being really respectful. The reception from from people has been the majority have been pretty positive, and then just letting them know really from the beginning beginning from the get go that it's going to take some time. I can't make things better um, right away. I can try to do whatever I can, and it's going to take at least two weeks. It's going to take at least a month before I can make things better for your pets. So, and I know that sometimes um, it it's it can get overwhelming. Maybe the other person might be at a different from a different location and say, "Okay, well, I I, I can go there, but it's going to take me two hours to get there." And so that, that that's what I'm doing right now, just taking these steps and um, trying to, I guess, take it, not taking the big saying, thinking like, because if I think I have to do all this, then it gets overwhelming. But coming back and saying, okay, I can do what I can here in Pinyon. I can do what I can in Gap. I can do what I can in Kayenta. And who can I reach out to? Because I know that I can't do it alone. There is a stray dog problem on the reservation. I saw a story recently about someone being attacked, actually, by a free-roaming dog. Terrible, uh, terribly sad story. So that's really just a reflection of the problems that occur when you're not getting those resources where they need to be. It's so tragic because we know what we need to do to stop that, but we just can't get it out there fast enough. Sometimes, you know, some some community members who, who just don't have the patience and then they just take the dogs, even though I tell them, hey, I'll, I'll be there in a day. Let me let me look, find, find space for them. I'll vaccinate. And then you realize that when you come to the location, it's like, oh, we took them. We took them someplace and we just dumped them alongside the roads. Like, why did you do that? I told you I wasn't come. I told you I wasn't come. And then, you know, you rush to that location and... There's no no puppies, and you you just hope that they wandered into a homestead. You just hope that somebody picked them up. That's not always the case. There's just that one community member who just doesn't have the patience and just kind of frustrated, perhaps. And you just have to respect, even though you may not agree with what they did, uh, respect their situation. Don't be judgmental. Just say, okay, well, step back, take a breather, and just be hopeful that the dogs, the puppies uh, found places to be. And then, you know, you see these puppies that are abandoned at the windmill or alongside the road and just pick them up and find places for them. So that's what I do. It's a life I cannot even begin to understand, Keith. You know, the level of desperation people must feel. And I, I absolutely cannot judge because I thankfully have never been in a situation where I've had to stop and say, I have this much money. I have 
you know, these bills, these mouths to feed, but those mouths just doubled because a stray dog that I just took into my family because she wandered up on my homestead had puppies that I didn't want. I would have happily got the dog spayed, but I, there's no way for me to, to access that service. So I hope when people hear stories like this, whether it's the Navajo Nation or anywhere else, that type of desperation, unfortunately, isn't unique to that area. But I hope people will stop, step outside of themselves, try to have compassion and realize how awful a decision like that must be. As I said earlier, you know, we can't round them up and outlaw pet ownership. So we just have to figure out how to help. If you're willing to help any of the Native nations, yes, help. But don't be just mental because, you know, it could be that the, the, they're doing the best they can. We're doing the best we can. And, um, you know, even even with me, sometimes um, I get a little angry, but then I realize, hey, you know, this, this, this is probably the best thing that they can do for now. You just don't know people's um, situations and just be respectful of that. And so that's what I do. You know, I, I get I get mad. I get a little annoyed, but then I'm all like, OK, well, you know, just calm down, Keith, because you don't know the situation. You just don't know. Kristen Hassan is the Maddie's American Pets Alive director, and part of her role is to oversee the Human Animal Support Services Project. Community-supported sheltering, another big theme for 2021, and that is certainly going to continue as we look to deepen the engagement of the public in our communities. She and I talked about a lot of different things. It was one of my favorite episodes of the year. You can check out the full version of episode 49 on our website, bestfriends.org podcast. But here's a little bit of the conversation with Kristen Hassan from American Pets Alive. So taking a pet away from someone, I have friends, and this just actually came up uh, two or three weeks ago uh, when, when something kind of popped up online here. And there are people who, I mean, listen, I would consider them to be empathetic. They are certainly outwardly passionate about social justice issues. But when it comes to, you know, quote unquote, poor people with pets, who boy. I mean, they're the, they're first in line to say that that pet should be somewhere, anywhere else, right? It's so frustrating. And I don't think it's real like malintent. It's just that bias. But the fact that, you know, that you and I are even having these conversations, I do think it says a lot about the, you know, there's potential for us to get this right. I, I watched, so we did a lot of work with people experiencing homelessness and their pets. And I, those pets sometimes broke my heart. When it was 110 degrees out, when I knew they were cold and asleep by the side of a highway. But we've got to start caring about the people on the other end of those pets. Like animal welfare, if we are going to earnestly say we care about the welfare of animals owned by people facing poverty and homelessness, we have to care about the people. And we can't, taking away the pets from the people isn't the solution. The solution is animal welfare has to form better connections and partnerships with human services agencies so that we can better help animals and people together. And I I think that's the only way we move forward uh, because it is not... Um, it is a just such an injustice to imagine that we take people's animals away when people are choosing to live in their cars and not a shelter because they want to keep their animal and people are choosing to live on the streets, not a shelter because they want to keep their animal. We need to create shelters that serve animals and people. And so that's where I think the shift we have has to completely change um, over the next decade to, to really think about the, that 
how do we just act as the supporters of that bond? So let's get into social justice and equity. As you said, all of this is so closely aligned overall the way we are as communities, as people, how we relate to each other. Can you help me understand how you see this relationship and maybe give me some examples of communities that you see that are doing well in this regard? Yeah. So I I went to an animal welfare conference, I think in 2014, and heard one of the main presentations was a person talking about animal welfare history. And in it, there were so many racist depictions um, that I was just totally shocked. I couldn't believe somebody was saying these things out loud. Members of the audience were asking incredibly offensive questions um, to the speaker who was giving relatively offensive answers back. And this all really shocked me. I, I had no idea that um, that really that this sort of level of what I saw as openly racist conversations could happen in, in public. I um, it came from the university and um, human social services background. So um, this was my introduction back into what was happening in animal welfare. And then seeing it on the ground, um, much of what we do in shelters is built on discriminatory practices. So do not adopt lists of people that um, we don't think are adequate homes, uh, background checks, the way we speak to people. Um, the way that we virtually chase people out of the shelter when we don't think they're adequate or we don't like um, how they have talked, et cetera. It goes on and on. And then the way we pe treat people who do have to surrender their animals. Uh, so all of this adds up to a system that doesn't treat people very kindly. And that's a lot of the reason so many animals have died in shelters is because we won't let people help save them. And so Diversity, equity, and inclusion is important in its own right, but we have a real problem we need to come to terms with in animal welfare um, from, from the top down, from our boards to our leadership teams, to the people working in the shelter, to our hiring practices, the list goes on and on. And, it, and what, what I think the bottom line of it all is, is that we can do better. And we have to invest in doing better because everyone loves animals and everyone deserves the love of an animal and everyone deserves to be treated uh, with dignity and respect and kindness, um, regardless of whether they work for us or they're a customer or a client. And, and so a big part of the Haas project is really realizing that. And it has been the hardest part of the project. Um, I will say that just hearing from our colleagues who are people of color, just hearing from our colleagues that have suffered discriminatory practices, it is, um, it's, you know, there's a lot of coming to terms we have to do um, in this field. And I think we're just beginning that process. Um, we are tied up in larger structures of power that are also um, built on structural inequality. So this is not going to be easy, but uh, it's really it's really been, I think that we're all undergoing a learning process and I'm really excited about that. I mean, we're just, we're learning as a movement how to even talk about these things. One of the things we just put out is the DEI glossary from the Haas project and it's just 
defining terms that people should use in animal welfare um, and that are about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And just to give people some starting points, but we're all babies in this conversation. And I think right now, especially as white people, uh, what we need to be doing is learning, reading, educating ourselves, and and even more important, listening and making space for voices of people who've been discriminated against. And um, I know I'm not supposed to plug best friends, but oh my gosh, the organizations, there are several organizations that have really made room for that. And um, I think the the world of animal welfare is watching um, and, uh, and is watching to see what we're all going to do next. And we have to keep a laser focus uh, on these discriminatory practices and on making animal welfare more inclusive. The ability for our industry to adapt was again on display in 2021. So many innovative programs and approaches out there, working through the less than ideal circumstances brought on from the pandemic. Now, Jace Huggins, the chief animal control officer for the Front Street Animal Shelter in Sacramento, California, spoke with us about their officers playing a role beyond animal issues and providing community members with public health information, specifically information about the COVID-19 vaccines. We do love good ideas at the Best Friends Podcast, especially ones that can be done virtually anywhere, and this is certainly one of those. Honestly, just this morning, one of our officers was able to help somebody get an appointment. He knew that he was eligible, but he was confused on where he was supposed to call. The number he had gotten was for a place that you can only call Monday morning between 8 and 10. He didn't know that, so he'd been calling, you know, it's just that kind of stuff. We're connecting them with the information they need. And it's just, it's really great because it's not us being, you know, the law, the rule followers, you know, you have to do this, you have to do that. It's literally just an opportunity to make a connection and help somebody. The other really great thing that's come of it is our health department is uh, going to start doing coronavirus vaccine clinics with our rabies clinics. So basically you can come bring your animal, get your animal vaccinated, get your license, get dog food, drive to the next parking lot, get your coronavirus vaccine. And then next year it'll also be flu vaccines if they need their flu vaccine. So people who have transportation issues, now we're cutting out a trip for them. We're, we're able to help them and their animal simultaneously. When I hear about these types of efforts, I always wonder, I always wonder where you get the time because yes, it's about helping the public. But Jace, you and your officers, you have a job to do, and that's to provide animal control services to the community, right? not public health information, not sewer maintenance. <laughs> and so while it sounds good, like, are you neglecting those core duties? So one of the things that my boss and I talked about, you know, I mentioned early on my occasional harebrained ideas, the way I see it and what I posed to him was, if it takes us three more minutes, you average five officers out a day. So that's 15 minutes per officer or no, 12 calls. So about 40 minutes per officer, five officers. Um, so hour and a half of work or so. And so in that hour and a half, we probably would have gotten three or four other calls done. So if we are running behind on that three or four calls, the three or four barking complaints, or we don't get out to a very common for those working in the field services, we'll understand this no food, water, shelter, I can't see my neighbor's dog, but I'm pretty sure it has no food, water, shelter. We're going to still get out to them. But if we get out of them the next day, because we were able to help this community member get that appointment or get that information, for the time being, it is worth that trade-off for us. And I don't have a problem going to our city council and saying, this is what we're doing. 
this is why we're an extra 10 calls behind each week, or this is why, you know, our department, I'll be completely honest, our department runs 100 to 150 calls in the hole at any given time. We always have more work to do than what we are physically capable of doing. So for me, it is important that we are focusing on the priorities. Public safety will always be first. The animal welfare, so stray injured, stray animal hit by car, any of that kind of stuff, that's always going to be first. But I personally do not have an issue having to put off other types of calls that are lower level, less concern where a person or an animal's health is not at risk in order to assist the health department in this way. Our city and county is is huge. Everybody's understaffed. Police department, public health, you go to any department, they're all understaffed, you know? So it's worth it. I, I guess to me, it's just, it's worth it. Yeah, we're going to be, we're going to get a little bit less work done. But if we save a life of one of our community members in the meantime, okay, we, we get a little less work done. You know, we, the pandemic has created an environment for us to flex ourselves in ways we never thought before. Officers complete entire calls by phone now. Calls that a year and a half ago, if I'd have said, hey, will you just call that person and get that solved? They'd have been like, oh, I can't just make a phone call. I've got to go out and see the house and I've got to see the fence and I've got to see this. You know, the pandemic changed all that. They're like, I don't need to go to the house. I'm fine. I'll call them, you know. And now, you know, I've got officers telling me like, I never thought this was going to be possible, but I can actually do more work because of how we've made these changes because I'm creating connections with people in a different way. And so, you know, I I say that this pandemic has been incredibly hard. Um, My wife lost her grandfather in it and... Uh, but there are some stuff and things that have changed. You know, I, I say that in some ways, one of the gifts the pandemic gave us was our daughter was born February 27th. My wife and I have been home with her the entire time for the entire first year. But it also has created a world in which experimentation is okay. And we can make changes that allow us to do things like fight for our community for something that's not related to animals at all. Because in the end, it is related to animals. If that person gets sick and gets hospitalized, you're going to have to go get their animals. If that person, you know, forbid, passes away, you're, those animals are likely going to come to you. If that person is so sick they can't feed their animal, you know, it does. Like helping your community, even if it doesn't feel like it's animal related, it is animal related because the healthier that pet parent is, the better capable they are of taking care of their animal. I really encourage people to stop looking at the trees, look at the forest, and then work your way down. Because it's, it's when you're taking that big picture view of what it is. Like anytime somebody says to me, that's not my job, I really try and make them think about the forest because really that's what you need to be looking at. If it's a human-related stuff, connecting somebody with sheltering resources for somebody experiencing homelessness, that can be your job because... Ultimately, if that person gets in a shelter and gets housed, you're probably less likely to end up getting called out there. And that's really the way I encourage people to think about it is I challenge you, don't, don't think about what's not your job. Think about all the things you can do that could reshape and form your job into a more proactive realm. Um, because when we really can get out there and not have to respond to 100, have 150 calls a day, of people complaining about what their neighbor is or isn't doing with their animal, that's when we really, really are going to start making a difference. That will eventually affect owner surrenders, the shelter populations, 
views on community cat colonies, all of that is being able to be more proactive. Speaking of good ideas, let's look back at the Unicorn Foster Squad. It's an innovative foster program helping dogs with behavioral challenges find a positive outcome. It's the brainchild of Gateway Pet Guardians and Brittany Fleming. In 2019, we went down to Austin Pets Alive, their apprenticeships that they had. And during one of their apprenticeships, Monica, with the feline masterclass, which seems weird because it was a feline class, she was telling me about how during their ringworm program, they made it cool for people to want to join. So people quit looking at it like it was this nasty fungus type thing. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. We don't really struggle with ringworm, but we have behavior dogs. So let's do it for the hard dogs. So that's kind of where it started. It was the idea that we should give all this extra support to those that take these harder dogs versus someone that's just going to take the four month old purebred dog, because those aren't the people that need the support. Cause I personally, I've always fostered unicorns and I know how, how hard it can be. You know, it's very, very rewarding and you're doing a great thing, but it's, it can be hard. So you need that extra support. So it's very focused on doing tons of things for the unicorn fosters. We do, where they get a free t-shirt that has a pit bull on it with a unicorn horn. They get a free photo session with a photographer. They get a trainer that comes to them instead of them having to leave their house and come to us. They're a part of like a special Facebook group that's separate from our other Facebook group where they can vent about things. If they're struggling with their dog today, they can vent without feeling like someone's going to judge them for it, you know, or worry that their dog's going to get put down right away because of what they post. You know, it's, it's all about tons of support and what it essentially kind of happened and it wasn't I don't wouldn't say it was intentional in the beginning but it became like a cool kids club everyone like suddenly wanted to be in it and they were it was almost like kind of clicky in a way in, in a positive way where people were like oh I want a unicorn and it was like okay I'll give you one you know and a big part is anyone can join the program you know we don't have any barriers for adoption or fosters and that's a huge point of why this program works so well is because we are very open-minded about who can join it. We don't have this preconceived notion that someone has to have years and years of experience with dogs to be able to take a harder dog. That's not the case. You just educate them. I started off with a dog aggressive foster and I never had one. We don't wait for the unicorn foster to come to us. We create them within our foster base. So um, it's all about the support and training people to become a unicorn foster. You said there are no requirements. I always like to think of myself in these situations I know, Brittany, and I'm not joking, I know next to nothing about dog behavior. I have limited experience in even having dogs. So if I say, hey, Brittany, I'm ready to go from kitten foster to unicorn foster, would I qualify? Are there requirements at all? I mean, honestly, there really isn't. It's just about us placing the right dog with you because every dog is an individual. Every dog's going to have different quirks. Like in your instance, do you work from home right now? I do work from home. So if we have a dog that maybe has separation anxiety, but they're good with cats and dogs, that would be a unicorn that you could take. So it's really just about figuring out which dogs fit with what person. We might get like someone in their 70s that want to foster and so many people would think, oh, they could never take a hard dog. They could take separation anxiety, you know? I mean, they're usually good. Otherwise, it's just they panic when their people leave. If they're home all the time, that works. Um, same thing with like college kids. I think a lot of people think because they're young, they're dumb and, you know, they won't listen, but they're the best fosters because they're a blank slate. They'll do whatever you tell them. And uh, they're the best for taking dogs that aren't good with other dogs because they're not living at home. So they don't have dogs with them currently. So it really is. It's kind of just an open book. It's just about matchmaking you with the proper foster that will fit your lifestyle. So it kind of, it varies dog to dog. Are you finding that you're getting newer fosters from this? Is it working as or intended to be a recruitment tool or is the focus on taking existing 
foster parents, foster homes, and having them become the unicorn fosters? So um, we don't really, like in the beginning, we marketed to try and get specific unicorn fosters, but it wasn't, it didn't really go that well, because I think people just don't really know what that means. So what we did instead is we just recruit for fosters in general, and then we just kind of convert them over. So we have, gosh, I'd have to go back maybe 70 80 people that have been unicorn fosters. I think a lot of them are brand new, to be honest with you. And we just kind of are like, hey, this is what's going on with this dog. You're going to be part of this special program so you can get these extra resources. And they're like, okay, you know, all right, fine, let's do it. We just do a lot of coaching and don't make it sound so scary because it's not scary all the time. You know, we're not those dogs that if the dog is truly dangerous, you know, we're not adopting them out and we're not going to send them to a foster. So you know, it's just being very open-minded and giving these animals a shot and the fosters a shot to be able to show they can succeed. This program earned Gateway Pet Guardians a Rachel Ray No-Kill Excellence grant through the Best Friends Network. They're now teaching others around the country how to assemble their own unicorn squad. Information on how to take this free online course, it's on our website, bestfriends.org podcast. Click on the link for episode 94. Mutual aid maybe a new term to you as it was to me not too long ago. Heather Owen from One Tale at a Time in Chicago spoke with us for episode 75 about their mutual aid program that aims to keep pets where they belong with their families. So my joke that I keep saying that my board doesn't like is that this is really just a marketing ploy. Um, Because, and I say that because we've been doing this for years, so it's not really new. It's just an opportunity for us to talk about it in a different way. So we found out over the last year that people didn't really understand all the work we were doing in our community and all the partnerships we had. So this launch of Pet Mutual Aid did two things for us. Number one, it it allowed people an opportunity to hear about what we're doing and all the success we've had in keeping pets with families. But it also forced us to do what we've been talking about for a long time, which is make it a priority because we always just talk about adoption. We always talk about foster and look who we save, but we never really talk about this other piece of it, which is the my little mantra here is it's not rescue if they already have a home. So it's now an opportunity for us to like put our foot down and really like plant a stake in the ground and say that for real, for real. And we're not taking pets from families anymore. So mutual aid, it's not a new term concept. Uh, I think maybe new to the animal welfare space, certainly in terms of it being called that. Uh, and framed up that way, you know, I, I think a lot of people, and I'll include myself in that group, don't know a lot about mutual aid. So uh, can you just maybe run through, I mean, what does mutual aid mean to you to one tail at a time? Uh, so yeah, mutual aid is definitely became a more popular term. There's a great book by Dean Spade called Mutual Aid. I recommend people read it, especially people in animal welfare. For us, it meant a, a few things. Number one, I think that you know, one of the things that we and other groups that have been doing a lot of this work have gotten wrong over the years is calling it outreach and talking about us bringing resources and helping people and we're we're empowering people. And that's just that's wrong. That's we're done with that. We're out on that. The people that we're working with are already empowered. They're already very powerful people caring for animals, doing TNR, taking in strays, like busting their ass, doing stuff that we don't even know that they're doing. They just don't have a brand and aren't like putting it on Facebook. So for us, it's an opportunity to talk about it as a two-way street. So we'll come and help and we'll bring our, our veterinarians and we'll do you know vaccines or we'll bring extra flea and tick medication we have. But they are doing 
probably the bulk of the work by caring for the animals in their community and helping us by, you know, letting us build a bridge so that we can come in there and, and, and give help. So that's part of it is we got to stop talking about it as us doing outreach and fixing problems and talk about it more as a collaboration between communities and, and groups. The second part is really this idea of it's not like one benevolent rich person or well-funded organization. It is people. And it is people helping each other without constraints of lots of rules or you have to apply for this grant or fill out this thing or have a license or like a lot of these barriers to programs that governments and big organizations often have. Like we get rid of the barriers and we break it down and it's just people helping people. That's interesting because what you've sort of described there is that there's a person who wants to help. So they donate to one tail at a time. There's a person who needs help. So they reach out to one tail at a time. Thanks to that donation, one tail at a time helps them. So help me understand, you know, how is mutual aid different than from that, which sounds like a very, I think, traditional model? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a couple differences. One of them being like a lot of outreach efforts from groups in the past would require things like you have to bring in your ID and show you're on assistance and you have to sign up for this program and spay neuter your animal and you have to do all of these things and they screen you and you have to be from this zip code and you're, you have to show this. We don't do that. Um, we mostly just trust people. For some of the programs, there are some qualifying things like you have, like, you know, we have one senior pet program, so they have to show they have a senior pet. We have one program that is based on zip code and our CRISP program, the, the shelter support program. We basically just ask, are, do you live in Chicago and are you experiencing an, a hardship that you may have to surrender your pet? And if they say yes, then we help them. And then the, the other piece is that we don't take grants or money for pet mutual aid from people that are going to try to put constraints on it. So instead, it's just people giving money. And it's for us, it's always a lot of people giving a little bit of money. So I'll give you one good example. Um, There's a woman who we found was living in her car. And we found this out because we got a dog from animal control it went to a microchip. They had a dead end, but we always follow up with those microchips and like see if we can get a hold of a real person. And we got a hold of a real person who explained her story. Yes, that's my dog. Yes, I love my dog, but I am living in my car with two other dogs and my car is broken down so I can't get to work. So traditional models of outreach or rescue don't account for complicated situations like that. But our model does and mutual aid models do. So what we did is we went to our volunteers and we said, hey, there's a woman living in her car. Her car's broken down. She wants to go to work. Do you guys want to help her fix her car? And so our volunteers all pitched in, raised enough money to fix her car and then help her get a down payment for um, an apartment. And then we gave her one of her dogs back and she didn't want to keep all three dogs because that's a, you know, that's a lot of dogs for someone who's maybe going through some, some stuff. So we rehomed two of her dogs and gave her back one of her dogs neutered. And, you know, we didn't do that through apply here and we'll get back to you. We did that through, okay, this woman needs help right now. And our volunteers are willing to give that help. So we'll just facilitate that. I'm willing to bet there are people right now, Heather, that are saying she's crazy. We're in the middle of a pandemic People are struggling. There are limited resources, the rent and the this and the that. So, you know, Heather's out there not crossing the T's, dotting the I's. She's not checking income. So she's out there just giving stuff away for free to people who probably can easily afford it. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to push back on the idea that there's limited money and limited resources. I think that we live in a country where there's lots of money and resources. And last year, we've seen a lot of success with um, people with scrappy budgets and scrappy ideas. And so I think that we can get there. But the other part of it is like, you know, has someone maybe swindled me for a free rabies vaccine? Sure, maybe. But like, do I care in the long run? No, because that dog got a rabies vaccine and is now safe. Most of the people that I talk to, if I just nudge them a little bit, like, hey, can you tell me a little bit about what's going on in your life? Like, I'm pretty blown away with how complex their hardships are. And so to ask for proof and sit down and do this interview, like just feels more invasive than anything. And if it's not going to get me to a point where like, I'm going to learn something that is going to help me better save animals, then I'm not going to do it. But part of it is laziness. I just like, I have other stuff to do, but part of it is just like efficiency sake. Like, I don't think that the applications and the proof that we have right now for a lot of the outreach programs are efficient, successful. Um, there's no reason to do them. So let's not do them. This st- it's, work is so hard. And, you know, one of the things that keeps us all going are those wins, right? I mean, what a feeling it must be for your staff, volunteers, donors to provide shelter, not just for a pet who needs it, but for a pet and a person and someone who is going, I imagine, through a very tough time to get that help at that moment in time in their life. I mean, that just must mean so much to them. And of course, they're also getting the support and love and companionship and purpose that comes with uh, sharing your life with an animal. It's just a very special program. Yeah, thank you. I think I think it's like, it's so cool. And it's, you know, we have so many empty spaces in this country and so many things that like we could give to people that we just don't. And so again, this idea of mutual aid is really pushing to give what you can when you can, because there are people that really freaking need it. And in Chicago, we have a big problem with people that don't have a place to sleep at night. And I just... I can't imagine it. So we do what we can. And again, it's not easy. A lot of this, some of it comes easy, but a lot of it is really not easy. But, you know, I think that we have to push ourselves. One of the points in Dean Spade's mutual aid book is that if you put yourself out there as an organization or as a group and say, like, this is what we do, people think you got it. So if you're going to say, like, we do mutual aid work or we help people or we help animals, like, you better have it and not just do the easy stuff, but do the stuff that, like, no one else is going to do if you don't do it. That's sort of our whole motto is, like, okay, well, we've got to get the most vulnerable populations because we said we got it. So we better have it because no one else is going to do it because they, they're donating to us or supporting us or thinking one tail of time is going to do it. So that's sort of, like, my push to every organization out there is, like, if you're putting yourself out there as a nonprofit and collecting donations, like you need to look for the most vulnerable populations and the people that like people and animals and environment, whatever it is you do that need the help the most, because that's what you signed up for. No one needs another animal welfare organization that's just going to go take the easy adoptable dogs from animal control or just take the the transports, but they can't have heartworm and they can't be big. Like all of the, we don't need that anymore. What we need is groups that are going to take chances and not all the chances are going to be successful. I've fallen on my face many times, but when they are successful, it's, it's really incredible and beautiful and it's what people are paying you to do. So um, I think that taking chances and risks for the biggest payout is really important right now. 
it would be impossible for us to find a way to cover all of the great things that were shared on the podcast this past year. So we hope you take the time to check out all of the past episodes. You can do that on your favorite podcast app and always at our website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. And it's been another hell of a year, hasn't it? A tough year in so many ways, but so much hope this year. And I know that 2022 will have its challenges, but there's nothing, and I mean this, there's nothing that we can't do when we do it together. On behalf of the Best Friends podcast team, Bethany Hines, Whitney Blyton, Kayla Sebo, Tawny Hammond, and Mark Peralta, we'd like to thank you for everything you do to save lives every single day. I'm John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.